You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Perhaps you've heard the, the saying that you should never ask God for patience because he just might teach it to you. And I think it's probably meant to be funny more than, than serious. Um, some people certainly, though, seem to take it pretty seriously. But what amazes me is the amount of people who on the one hand will say tongue-in-cheek or not, don't pray for patience, and then in full seriousness will ask God for justice. If you're going to stop praying for things, I would recommend that you never ask God for justice. People who pray for justice, people who say to God or even to each other, I just wish God would give me what I deserve, clearly, now let me be nice, have an inaccurate view of themselves. We might say that they haven't taken Romans 12 3 to heart. Romans 12, 3 tells us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think with sober judgment. And I don't have to spend very much time thinking of myself with sober judgment to know that I don't want what I deserve. I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want grace. I don't want what I deserve because I deserve death and hell. I want God's mercy and his grace. But I I think we consider our, our own sinfulness much like we think about bad driving. I don't know about you, but you've probably noticed this. Probably you've done this. I've done this. We love to tell stories, right, about how angry we got when somebody cut us off. Somebody stole our parking spot. Somebody braked too aggressively in front of us. Right? You ride in the car with some people and you're, you'll just hear them talking, just talking about everybody else on the road. Do you see how fast that guy is, right? That's ridiculous. Nobody should drive that fast. Where are the cops when you need them? Somebody should pull that person over, right? My goodness. Did you see that guy just ran that red light? You can't run a red light. Did you see what that person did? I am, that's crazy. But here's the thing. All of those things that those people are doing that are so objectionable, most of us are doing the very same thing ourselves. And when we do them, well, we're just in a hurry. We got somewhere to go. My goodness, that light turned too quick. It wasn't supposed to turn that quick. And so I would advise not telling God that you want what you deserve until you have thought long and hard about what it is that you actually deserve. I would caution you against clamoring for justice without first looking in the mirror. At the end of the day, here's the thing. Whether you ask for it or not, God will give you what you deserve. His holiness demands it. He cannot do otherwise. Now, he may be patient in carrying out his judgments and punishments, but he will give you what you deserve. 
And that's the situation that we find the Israelites in as we turn back to the book of Ezekiel this morning. Uh, You may remember that Ezekiel is prophesying to the, the people of God who have been carried off captive to the land of Babylon. They're in a sense like civilian prisoners of war. And can't you just imagine what they were doing while they were there? The outrage they must have had that they had been carried off to a foreign land. I'm sure some of them were crying out for justice. God needs to step in and save them from this wicked Nebuchadnezzar and give me what I deserve. The problem is that God had sent them into exile because that is what they deserved. The people of Israel had been killed at the end of the sword because that's what they deserved. God's justice demanded it. God always gives us what we deserve. And this morning, I want us to see that in the prophecy of Ezekiel as he explains it to this captive people. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel chapter 7. We're going to be reading and thinking together about this whole chapter, um, chapter 7. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute. Last week, we were in chapter 3. Like, what happened to chapters 4, 5, and 6? Well, I would certainly encourage you to read them. You should read them. They're very interesting. In fact, they're, they're fascinating as we see Ezekiel's prophecy, not just spoken, but actually acted out. There's some incredible things. I'll just whet your appetite. Ezekiel's told to cook all of his food over human poop. So that'll get you going, um, right? So we're not looking at those. The reason for that is actually four, five, six, and seven, they all basically are telling us the same thing in different ways. And here's what they're telling us. And that is that God always gives us what we deserve. And so we're gonna look at chapter seven today. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find our passage on page 775. And I want to remind you as always that those Bibles there are, they're there for you. They're there for you to take. So if you need a Bible at home, please take one of those with you. We want you to have a copy of God's word. Let me read Ezekiel 7 for us. It says this, the word of the Lord came to me. And you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways. While your abominations are in your midst, then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. An end has come, the end has come. It has awakened against you, behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you. O inhabitants of the land, the time has come, the day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day 
Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude. It shall not turn back. And because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle. For my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without pestilence and famine are within. He who's in the field dies by the sword and him who's in the city famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be like, they will be on the mountains like vet doves of the valleys, all of them moaning each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on their faces and baldness on all their heads. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was a stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore, I make it an unclean thing to them and I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey and to the wicked of the earth for spoil and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. Forge a chain for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they shall seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from a prophet while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them and according to their judgments, I will judge them and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, that last verse is particularly straightforward about this. God gives us what we deserve, and he does it so that we will give him what he deserves. Our God is a just God, and he is a holy God, and our sin is an offense to his holiness. It's an offense to, to his love. God, God, full of care for his people, has lavished them 
with love. All through, read, read the Old Testament, all through God has lavished this people with his love. He has provided for them abundantly. He has covenanted with them in his love. He, he even uses the language of, of, of marriage to talk about their relationship. And then the people of Israel took the blessings of God and his love and they went and they committed adultery with other gods. It's an offense to the love of God, to the holiness of God, and it demands the justice of God. And so God will give them what they deserve. And it's actually, the, that's the exact language he uses repeatedly in this prophecy that the punishment of God will match or will meet the crime. Right, in verse three, he tells them that he will judge them according to their ways. God isn't making up abominations to blame on the people. He doesn't have to. He's simply looking at their actual record. And he says the same thing in verses eight and nine. He says this, now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. And then you will know that I'm the Lord. Or, or consider that, that very ending, verse 27. According to their way, I will do to them. According to their judgments, I will judge them. It, it's because of their adultery and their idolatry that God is punishing his people. He's not some sort of arbitrary tyrant out here. He's a just God. And so what is it that the people of God have done that is so drastic? I'm sure there's, there's played plenty of people in those days asking that question. That, that's the sort of question, oh, we ask it. We ask it because we don't understand the gravity of our offense. Right? We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Right? The answer is pretty clear. They had forgotten who God was and they had worshiped other gods. They'd even used the treasures of God to worship these other gods. We like stories of villains where the villains seem particularly villainous. Right? It makes sense that God would punish a murderer or, or a rapist, right? But the strongest words of judgment that God has in scripture is not against murderers and rapists or thieves, but idolaters, those who worship other gods. And we like to be able to separate ourselves from the evil deeds that God punishes. But the reality is that much of the evil, the evil that God seems to care about the most are the very things that we are most prone to commit ourselves. Right, the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every part of you should be given over in love of God. God has not hidden the fact that he takes idolatry seriously, very seriously. The problem is that we have ignored his clarity. And the people of Ezekiel's day had certainly ignored it as well. Chapter six of Ezekiel says it perhaps even more clearly. 
talking about that seriousness of idolatry. This is from Ezekiel 6, 9. It says, God says, I have been broken. I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, over their eyes that go whoring after idols. God says that he's broken. He's crushed. He's torn apart. He's devastated by the idolatry of the people of Israel. God has loved them. God has loved us fully. And they didn't just reject his love. I mean, that would have been one thing. They didn't just reject it. They accepted it. And then they gave it to somebody else. In chapter 7, verse 20, we're told that they took his beautiful ornament and they made abominable images and their detestable things of it. They were worshiping idols that they had created out of God's treasures. They'd taken the gold and the silver from the temple and they'd melted it down and they'd made idols. It's like, it's like the husband who uses the cologne that his wife gave him when he goes on dates with other women. You know, one of the most striking things to me about the way that God interacts with his people all through scripture is God's willingness to give his people what they want. He gives us what we want. Very first sin in all of the Bible, the temptation that convinced Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit was that if they ate it, they would no longer need God. So they ate it. And God said, you don't need me? And he cast them away from his presence. That's what you want? You want life without relationship with me? Go. Moses, he leads the people of Israel to the Jordan River, to the brink of the promised land. And they, and they send these spies into the promised land to, to see what it's like. And the spies come back and they say, it's amazing, but it's scary. And the people's response is, we would rather die in the wilderness than enter the promised land and fight the battles that are ahead. And so what does God do? He allows them to wander around for 40 years until all of them, all of them who wanted to die in the wilderness, die in the wilderness. He gives them what they wanted. And the same thing's happening here. The people have been using the treasures of the true God to worship other gods. The people reveal that their true desire is that the things of God would be given over to the gods of the nations. And so God gives them what they want. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and in addition to taking the people away and destroying Jerusalem, he takes the gold and the silver and the treasures of the temple and he puts them before the Babylonian gods which is exactly what the people have said that they wanted. In truth, we might say that the people of Israel have essentially said, we really wish we were Babylonians. We like, we like what they're doing. We like their gods. We like their way of life. And God says, well, if that's what you want, go to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes them off. God gives us what we want. And so I'd be careful what you wish for. It might be helpful for us to consider how susceptible we are to the same sorts of failures that the people of Israel fall into. 
right? If, it, if it's idolatry, that's the core issue, then I should probably search my heart for those things that I might be worshiping in the place of God. To what do I give my time and my attention, my money? When I find myself not having time for God, what are the things that I do still seem to have time for? When I'm feeling down or depressed, who do I run to? What do I run to for comfort? I wonder, right? I wonder if I'm even using the treasures of God in pursuit of, in worship of those other idols. Right? Do I use the blessings of God to worship and serve him or to, or to further my own reputation, my own comfort, my own self-made peace? It would do well for us to consider these things because God always gives us what we deserve. All over scripture, we're told that God is slow to anger. Another way to put it might be that God is patient with his people. But the, but the prophet Nahum perhaps expresses this as succinctly as possible when he says this, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And here in Ezekiel, we see that while God is a patient God, his patience has come to an end. He may be slow to anger, but he can still get there. Pastor Landon um, Dowden uses the example of a credit card. You know, you can, you can spend all the money you want all month long, spend all the money, but eventually the day of reckoning is coming. And it may feel like nobody's watching. Every time you swipe that card, nobody's watching. Your wallet doesn't get any skinnier. Nobody's watching. But in fact, a very detailed and precise record has been kept. If God's people thought that God was not watching or perhaps that God didn't care about their rebellion, they're about to find out that they were dead wrong. In verse 12 of our passage, we're told the time has come, the day has arrived. Five times in our passage, we're told the end has come. God always gives us what we deserve and, and there's no escaping it. There's no escaping it. Your idols won't be able to save you. No one, nothing can stand in the face of, of God. The one who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That one, the one who reigns in majesty, he is doing his work and no one and nothing can stay the hand of the Lord. So look at verses 15 and 16. It says this. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who's in the field dies by the sword. Him who's in the city, famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like the doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. You can't escape it. You can't go to the fields. You can't go to the city. You, even if you escape, you don't really escape. And you can't buy your way out either, right? Verse 19, 
They cast their silver in the streets. Their gold's an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. And then verse 25, right? When anguish comes, they seek peace, but there will be none. That is to say, no nation will come to their aid. They can try to make a, make a pact with somebody else. Maybe somebody else will help. No one will come to their aid. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor upon rumor. Where do you go? How do you find help? Maybe I'll go to a prophet. They seek a vision from a prophet to no avail. Maybe I'll go to a priest, but the law has perished from the priest. Maybe the elders, but the council has perished from the elders. The king is in mourning. The prince is wrapped in despair. The hands of the people are paralyzed in terror. Prophet, priest, elders, kings, prince, any and all of the people. Nope, nobody. Nobody can save them. Nobody can help them because God always gives us what we deserve. Always. Now, it's been a pretty depressing sermon so far. So hear me out. God always gives us what we deserve, and that is actually the best possible news that I could give you this morning. And here's why. Because God, in his grace, changes what we deserve. So a supernatural, miraculous thing happened when Jesus died on the cross. And a supernatural, miraculous thing happens when we repent and believe in him. And that is that God changes what we deserve. Landon Dowden again. Against the backdrop of Ezekiel 7, can the cross of Christ be more glorious? We are just as guilty of idolatry as Ezekiel's generation, and we deserve every bit of the punishment they received, but Christ has taken it in our place. Upon him has been laid every act of our rebellion towards God. Christ has been treated as if he were the one who sought security somewhere besides the Father. His atonement covers every adulterous tryst that we've committed against God with our eyes and our hearts. And that's good news, but it is only half the story. The glory of our salvation is, is not, not simply that our sin was placed on Jesus and paid in full, but that his righteousness was placed on us. And the, the, the theological term for this is double imputation. That is to say that the sin, my sin, your sin was imputed to Jesus. That is put on his account and he died for it. He paid it off. But here's the great part. His righteousness was imputed to or placed on us. We are transformed in the sight of God from rebellious sinners to his righteous children. Think back to 2 Corinthians 5. We read this at the beginning. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it goes on to say, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we are a new creation. Our old sinful self has gone, but a new self has come. A new self that is full of righteousness, full of the righteousness of Christ. 
in Christ, we have become the righteousness of God. And that is amazing news. It's amazing news because God always gives you what you deserve. God is bound by his holiness and his justice and his love to give to his children all of the glories that are owed to Christ. All the splendor of an eternal relationship with God. He must, God must grant you access to his kingdom. He must give you a crown of righteousness. He must, because he always gives us what we deserve. And so how do we access that that righteousness by faith, by, by, by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus. This is the way First John talks about it. It says, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that? Forgiveness comes when confession of sin meets the justice of God. The way we're told it happened in in Abraham's life is that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's what Paul says about that in the book of Romans. He says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, we're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will, it, that's righteousness. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When we believe in Jesus, we are delivered from our trespasses and declared righteous, not just not sinful, Jesus didn't die to make you not sinful. He died to make you righteous. And our eternity is secure because God always gives us what we deserve. But but God gives us what we deserve so that we will give him what he deserves. God's purpose in both punishment and salvation is that we would come to know him rightly and then worship him as Lord over all. In in this prophecy in Ezekiel, God keeps telling them that he's going to punish them, but he keeps telling them why. In verse four, then you will know that I'm the Lord. Verse nine, then you will know that I'm the Lord. Verse 27, they shall know that I am the Lord. And and that word Lord doesn't just mean God. That's the personal name of God. That's, That's the word Yahweh. God's desire is that we would have this personal knowledge of him, a personal relationship with him. And when we do, we will see just how worthy of worship he is. And we will give him what he deserves. And what does he deserve? Well, he deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. God gives us what we deserve so that we will give him what he deserves. And and the promise of scripture is that one day he'll receive it. He'll get it. One one way or the other, he will get it. 
Philippians 2 tells us that because of Christ's willing, humble sacrifice on our behalf, because, because he was willing to not only pay the penalty for our sin that it deserved, but also to give us his righteousness, because of that, God now has highly exalted him, has bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He will receive it. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will receive what he deserves and you will receive what you deserve. The question is, will you receive his punishment or his blessing? God punishes and he saves for the same purpose that his glory might be known, that he might be worshiped. And God always gives us what we deserve. The question is, what do you deserve? What do you deserve? The punishment for all your sins or have you repented and believed in Jesus? Do you stand righteous before God? deserving of all the glory and the blessing of the kingdom of God forever. God always gives us what we deserve so that we will give him what he deserves. Let's pray. God, you are worthy. But your, your name is above every name. But we, we give to you now not only our worship and our, and, our, and our glory, but Lord, we give to you our lives. Because it turns out when we've tried to live them on our own and in our own power and with our own wisdom, we repeatedly, repeatedly mess things up. And so Lord, we give our lives over to you, believing believing that your way is the best way. It's the only right way. We ask, Lord, that we might know you as our Savior. Having believed in you, Lord, we trust that we do. And Lord, we look with anticipation towards that day where all that we deserve, all the glories that are given to us in Christ, become ours forever, that we might in turn give them back to you in praise forever. In Christ's name, amen.